We are so glad that you're here today. Let me just mention before we go any further, if you are one of our honored guests, we are just so excited that you're here. There's a uh, a card in the pew back in front of you. If you would uh, just uh, take that and uh, uh, fill out the requested information and you can take it back to the table at the close of the service or uh, you can uh, uh, leave it in your pew and we'll find it or you can hand it to me after the service. That would be wonderful. We're just thrilled that you're here to worship our risen Lord. Um, it's a real treat for me uh, to introduce Bruce Billingsley. He doesn't need much introdu- introduction to you because uh, many of you know him. He's one of our adult Sunday school teachers. He's a wonderful musician. He uh, leads our Bible study on Sunday nights. Just tremendous power in his teaching. And uh, he's also a Gideon. And he's going to come this morning and give us a a report from the Gideons and uh, challenge us with that. And uh, so, Bruce, my brother, uh, and we are, we are so, uh, I'm so blessed to know this man. We, uh, we went to Kenya together (laughs) and had a glorious, glorious time. And I've got a tell on uh, Daryl. Where'd Daryl go? There he is. Daryl went with us too. And... uh, Daryl's dad, bless his heart, beautiful Christian. He's passed on, gone on to be with the Lord. But he had a habit, Daryl's dad did, of every time he stayed in a hotel, he would liberate the Gideon Bible. And so Daryl had all these Gideon Bibles, and we took them with us to Africa. And those Bibles ended up right where they belonged. Because those pastors over there that we were leading in a pastor's conference, they needed Bibles. Many of them were leading congregations, and they didn't even have one one book. They did not have one Bible amongst the whole congregation. And those Gideon Bibles ended up there. And uh, uh, Bruce, I'm not going to take any more of your time. I only gave you seven. You got two left. Uh, no, no. <laughs> Come on and share with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Let me get myself situated. I need my hands free because I do have to use my notes. Uh, all right. This is a story about a man who embraced eternal life in his very last hour, literally. A nurse tells the story. In a hospital in southwestern Norway, this nurse was told that she was to be responsible for the room at the very end of a corridor. The patient there was a very seriously ill man who for some time had been regarded as being mortally ill with lung cancer. The man was difficult to get along with, and he always frowned when he was spoken to. But the nurse noticed when she went into the room this day that there was something different about him. She couldn't put her finger on it. But he was sitting up in bed to make his breathing easier, and he seemed to be weaker than he had been the last time she saw him. While she was nursing him, he suddenly grabbed her hand. She could tell that he was afraid. Are you scared? She asked him. He said, yes. She said, are you afraid of dying? And again, he said, yes. She remembered that there was a Gideon Testament like this one. 
in the bedside table by his bed. So she got it out and asked if she could read some words to him. And when he agreed, she read John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And then she read it again, and this time she put his name in, you know, for God so loved Michael, or whatever the man's name was, to make it more personal. And then she turned to John 1.12, and she read this, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Then she asked if he wanted to receive Jesus into his heart, and he said it was exactly what he wanted. So they prayed together a short and simple prayer, and then she then suggested to him that he have the Lord's Supper with the hospital chaplain. So he said, yes, I would like to. And she contacted the chaplain, and only a few minutes later, the man and the chaplain had the Lord's Supper together. And when the chaplain came out of the room, he told the nurse that she should go back into the room. And when she did, she could easily see that something wonderful had happened. The man's fearsome appearance was gone, and he even smiled as they talked. Because she didn't know the man well, she didn't know what she really should talk about, so she asked him if she could sing a song. And he nodded, and so she put her arm gently around his shoulder and began to sing a hymn. She had barely sung one line when the man fell forward and died. She began to cry, not from grief, but from joy and gratitude, because she knew that this man's last hour on earth had been vital for his eternity. That Bible, that, that bedside scripture was put there by the Gideons. Who are the Gideons? Well, we are Christian business and professional men banded together for the sole purpose of winning men and women, boys and girls, to a saving knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This we do through personal witness and the placing of scriptures in hotels, motels, hospital rooms, jails, rescue missions, and other places where they would not otherwise be found, including staterooms on ocean liners, by the way. We also distribute testaments to school children and to college students. Here's a college student testament, this nice green one and to people in the military. And those uh, uh, look really special. They've got, um, what you call it, that, that kind of camouflage. Thank you so much for that word. All right, all right. All right. And so right. this is what we do. Uh, recently we distributed, this was last fall, over 3,000 of these to students at the Southwest, I mean, at the Texas, State University in San Marcos, and we'll do that again this fall. Our wives, bless their sweet and lovely hearts, can belong to the auxiliary, and they pray for the work, and they place Bibles in doctors' offices and distribute testaments like this to people in the medical profession. 
There are Gideons in over 192 countries around the world, placing scriptures in over 84 languages. I think it's over, but it's 84 at least. The Gideons are an arm of our church, the arm of this church. Around the world, they are missionaries in countries where perhaps foreign missionaries are not allowed. So there they can witness for Christ and distribute copies of God's word. The Gideons claim the promise of Isaiah 55:11, My word that goeth forth out of my mouth shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I please, and it shall prosper in the thing whereto I sent it. In our over 110 years of history, our 110-year history, we have placed over a billion scriptures how can you help? How can you help? Well, first you can pray, and believe me, the Lord will reward you for your prayers for this work. You can join the Gideons if you are qualified, and you can use the Gideon expression cards, they're called, and we have a rack of them behind the, um, behind the counter out there in the narthex. And uh, so, and that way you can, you, you can give... Bibles in memory of someone who has passed on or for an occasion in somebody's life. And then you can contribute to the work. We're talking about financial help. Uh, something like one dollar and a quarter is going to buy a testament like this. And they can do wonderful, wonderful things. Um, one testament in the Philippines given to a boy uh, turned out because he was a wonderful, wonderful worker. Uh, he prayed when he grew up that all of his sons might be pastors, and eight of them were, and then all of his grandsons. And so there are over 300 Baptist churches there because of this man having received a testament when he was a fifth grader in school. Wonderful things can happen. So every dollar, every penny that you give is going to go for the purchase and distribution of scriptures. We Gideons take care of the overhead. Thank you. Thank you, Wyatt, for asking me. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bruce. Thank you, Bruce. God bless you. All right. Let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this work that we've heard about this morning with the Gideons. These men and and the, their wives that are committed to your word and to dist distributing your word so that your kingdom might grow. And Father, I, it, your word is so precious to us, so vital to us. And as we look into your word this morning, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would move mightily in this place. Father, I pray that you would bind Satan because I know he does not like what's going on this morning as your people gather to sing praises to you and to look into your truth and to apply it to their lives. Father, I, I acknowledge that there is spiritual warfare going on today and we need you. We desperately need you. And Father, we just ask that you would bless and that you would guide and that you would change hearts today. Father, we acknowledge that you are in the life-changing business. And we thank you for that because our lives are so wretched before we know you. And Lord, we 
give you the praise and the glory for all that you do and all that is done in your name. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Matthew. We're going to be looking at chapter 7 primarily, but we're going to be skipping around a little bit. Um, this is from the, the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, the... Uh, by the way, I'll, I, I send greetings from Mike. Uh, he, he's still on vacation, and he'll be back uh, next week. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm excited to be here and uh, stand to proclaim the truth of God's message to you. When God put this passage on me to, to deliver the message from there, it was about two weeks ago. And the Sermon on the Mount is, is a hard teaching. There's some hard things in there. I had a, uh, a pastor once that I worked with, and he, uh, Dr. Jimmy Martin, and uh, he's now uh, heading up the European Baptist Convention, International Baptist Convention over in Germany and all of Europe and reaching out into other continents. And he's a sharp, sharp guy. And one morning for his sermon, he recited the entire Sermon on the Mount. These are Jesus' own words. And he recited them in character and he was dynamic with it. And he did it like he said it and, and demonstrated the truths of the Sermon on the Mount just the way he envisioned that Jesus would have done it. And then at the close of the service, it was very much old school. He stood at the back and everyone went by, filed by and shook his hand and said, good job and patted him on the back and encouraged him except for one person. I told you it was a hard teaching. This one person apparently had missed the fact that these were the words of Jesus. And this person got up in his face and said, don't you ever talk to us like that again. There's some difficult things there. Jesus said he didn't come to uh, do away with the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And uh, uh, everywhere the law said, do this, Jesus took it one step further. He, on, on divorce and on, uh, on, uh, just on judging others and on and on and on. He, uh, he took it one step forth, further and he covered lots of ground. He started with the Beatitudes and talked about salt and light. And uh, talked about the fulfillment of the law. And he talked about murder and how we murder in our hearts. Uh, and adultery and how we can be guilty of adultery in our heart with, without doing anything with our bodies. He talked about divorce and, and warned us about taking oaths and judging other people. And uh, said, hey, this, this eye for an eye thing, you need to be careful with that. And uh, that we need to love our enemies, that we need to give to the needy, that we need to. He taught us how to pray and how to fast during this uh, um, during this sermon. He talked about putting our treasures in heaven and taught us not to worry. Um, he he told us that if we would ask and we would seek, that we would find. And then he and then we're getting down to the part that we're going to focus on. Here this morning, 
with the narrow gate and the wide gate and the false prophets and the folks that claimed great works in the name of Jesus, in the name of God. But Jesus said, depart from me, I never knew you. And uh, then about the wise builder. And we're going to start with that part about the wise and the foolish builder. And I struggled with this when, when God told me that I needed to preach from the Sermon on the Mount because of my previous experience with, uh, with Dr. Martin. And uh, I said, Lord, don't you mean that Dan needs to preach from this? Or Kyle? And he wouldn't let it go. So I can't say I've been working on this sermon for two weeks. It's been working on me for two weeks. And uh, I pray that it will bring uh, clarity to you. We're talking about assurance of salvation. Are you sure? Are you building on the rock? And uh, let's, let's read beginning in chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it, w- because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Now, that's, that section of Scripture begins with the word, therefore. And in Scripture, any time you see the word therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. And it's referring back to the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount, but especially beginning in verse 13. So we're going to talk about some of this background before we get into the main portion of our text. Uh, let's, Let's read together verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Throughout this text, we're going to see a pattern of twos. We're going to see two gates. We're going to see two paths. We're going to see uh, two types of um, of being confused and uh, distracted. We're going to see two types of trees and two types of fruit, uh, two types of foundation. So there's, there's two. There's a series of two. And when we understand scriptures, we understand that there's a right, a right gate, a right path, a right tree, a right prophet, a right foundation, and that leads to eternity, the right place to be with God. And the other gate, the other path, the other fruit, the other prophets, the false prophets, 
the other foundation leads to a way of destruction. And it's, a, it's not just a destruction like when we have hurricanes come through. Y'all remember, I think last time we had a hurricane, it rained, okay? A long time ago. We're not talking about the destruction from a hurricane or a tornado or a fire that's rebuilt later on and that we can recover from. We're talking about total destruction. We're talking about being separated from God and having eternity apart from Him. So this is serious doings. And uh, we need to make sure that we get the right gate and go down the right path, that we follow the right prophets, that we uh, build on the right foundation. Because it's very, very critical. It's, it's, it's for eternity. Now, talking about this narrow gate, it's narrow because we're going to have to get rid of some baggage to get through it. We can't just saunter through it with all of our sand baggage. The gate is Jesus Christ. And as we go through Jesus... As we accept him as our Lord and Savior, as he as we make him Lord of our life, that baggage has got to stay back. We need to turn away from that and turn to him. It's the only way. The world tells us that the wide gate is the way. And that's every cult, every false religion, uh, every... Um, Society that says, hey, if it feels good, do it. Every person that's, uh, every talk show host that's on television that's not pointing people toward Christ, if they're saying, uh, you know, you just have to be a better person. They, they teach some good things, but if they're not part of teaching the message of Jesus Christ being the only way, they're lacking in what they're teaching. And Satan is a master at taking the truth and twisting it just a little bit so that we don't get the result that God wants for us. And he is all the time at, at war with us and with God. He, he wants to take the Christian and convince the Christian the person who's depending on Jesus Christ, and he wants to put doubt in our minds. And he wants to accuse us. He's the great liar. He's the great accuser. And he wants to make us feel like we are not God's child, when in fact we are. And then, likewise, someone who is not a child of God, he wants to convince them, hey, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. The world tells you that God is, is love and, and he wouldn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't. He provides a way away from it. He provides a way to eternity with him. We're, this idea of shedding everything 
so that we can go through as far as sin nature is is uh, backed up in other in another area um, in matthew nineteen twenty three through twenty four Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, "I tell you the truth, it is hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven again, I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God now The eye of a needle, that sounds kind of different if you haven't heard that talk before. Uh, In a walled city like Jerusalem, they would close the gates at night. But if a caravan or even an individual person came up and he had a a beast of burden, a camel, uh, and he had been going across the, uh, uh, the dry and arid landscape there... Uh, he would uh, come up to the city and they've already closed the gates. So he's going to have to go through a little uh, routine to get into the gate where there's safety. And what he has to do is outside the gate, uh, excuse me, yes, outside the wall, uh, he has to unload all the stuff off of his camel. And there's a small hole, a small opening, a smaller gate that is in the wall of the city. And his camel, after losing all of his baggage, has to get down on his knees and crawl through this gate. And then they pass all the luggage through, load it back up, and and go on about their business. It keeps armies from coming in and riding in on their camels at night and, uh, and slaughtering the people. But it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom because we've got to take the value off of our wealth and realize that the real value is in the gate, the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And uh, a modern-day example of this um, could be when you go to the airport, okay? And you have to go through the scanner, uh, through the, uh, you have to pass everything through the conveyor belt, take your boots off and, and uh, your billfold and your belt and uh, jewelry and all this stuff goes, briefcase, uh, computer, phone, it all goes on the conveyor belt. And then you walk through and now you walk through virtually naked because, you know, I, I don't envy that guy because, I mean, all right. Now, the, pro- the problem with that analogy, with that parallel, is after it goes down the conveyor belt, you gather up all your stuff. And then you put it all back on and you go on about your business. When you go through the gate of Jesus Christ and you shed that that baggage, that sin baggage, he wants you to leave it alone. Now, Satan wants to do, he's got other plans. So while we're walking as believers in Jesus Christ, as we're walking down that narrow path, trying to be obedient to the Lord, some try harder than others. Satan's there and he's trying to convince us, hey, it's all right. You can go ahead and do this. You can take this liberty. 
You're under the blood. You're, you're under God's grace. You can, you can do this. Everybody's doing it. And he tempts us. And sometimes Christians, sometimes Christian leaders fall just terribly into sin. And it causes others to stumble. And that's exactly what the enemy wants. So, um, but the idea is that we're going to take all that baggage off, all that sin baggage off. And if there is some still there, the blood of Christ covers it. He forgives us. So we have the narrow gate and the narrow way. And we have the broad, broad gate or the large gate and the uh, uh, broad way. It's, it's a heartache to see the many people that are going through that broad gate and going down the broad way to total destruction. Let's look at this next section here. We're not going to cover every bit of it, but we're going to hit some highlights here. Let's, let's read beginning in verse 15 and go through 23. Watch out for these false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistle? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, for a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown, thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But only he who comes, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. What a heartache that would be. What a terror that would be. He's, he tells us here to watch out for false prophets. Now, in the Old Testament, we, we read and study many of the prophets. And they are usually, uh, uh, like John the Baptist, he had hairy clothes on. He had uh, animal skins that he, uh, that he wore. And his diet was different. And... Uh, uh, he was out in the wilderness, and he was pointing the way for for Jesus. And prophets before him, many of them would be attired that way. But here, we've got a false prophet. And, uh, and he says that they come to you in sheep's clothing. All right? Now, who would wear sheep's clothing? The prophets would wear hairy clothing. But this false prophet... He's with the sheep. He, he's someone's shepherd. He's someone's spiritual leader. Because the shepherd would wear wool clothes. And he would be amongst the sheep. And they would be accepting of him. And, 
And if he's leading them any way other than to Jesus Christ, he's leading them astray. And that's religion after religion, cult after cult, even some Baptist churches. I have to tell you that uh, when I was uh, uh, serving in the church in Singapore, I was appalled to, to find so many Baptist people that came from the States to, to work in Singapore. And when they uh, got there, they, they were looking for a, a place to worship and they were also looking for a little slice of Americana. And so they would come to International Baptist Church in Singapore and they would hear about Jesus and his lifeblood being shed and his victory over the grave for the first time. These are Baptist people and from Baptist churches here in the States had never heard the gospel. They had uh, uh, a prophet. They had a shepherd that was leading them and was not telling them the truth about Jesus. And as they heard that message, they came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And many of them uh, learned how to be evangelists, were discipled and, and uh, encouraged to uh, learn how to lead someone else to the Lord. And when their two or three year stint, four year stint, whatever it was, was up there in Singapore, they would say, we're going back to the States, we're going back to our home church, and we're going as evangelists. We're going to tell them the truth about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. And uh, um, now, there's, there's two types of deception in this section of verses. There's those that are deceived by a false prophet, a false shepherd. And uh, then there's those that are uh, deceived by themselves. They are self-deceived. And I've got a little illustration here that I hope will uh, uh, help you understand this. They had done all these works, but they had done them in their own power because their name was not in the book of life. Jesus didn't know them. And so they had all these works. Now, works around the house for me are like folding laundry, okay? Towels, washcloth, nothing nothing too complicated, all right? Pat can testify to that. Uh, and uh, I got her snowed on that one, I think. But, uh, you know, if, if, I've, if I don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ... And I'm trying to work my way into heaven. I do good works. I prophesy in the name of Jesus. I witness for him. I might help someone that's got a need. And I pack my, my basket here. And then, we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, and then... I would have the gall to stand before Jesus and say, look what I did. I deserve to be in your heaven. Picture this. This is judgment day. And God is there. And all the people who have ever lived are there. And in walks Jesus. And he says, hi, Dad. 
God says, hello, son. And Jesus goes and he opens the book of life and he begins the separation process. Now, I'm convinced he doesn't need the book to know. He knows us by name. But after his people are over here and they are secure, those folks that have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, there's this one guy that's got his works. And let me read you what it says. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? So there they are. They're not in the book of life, but they're going, look here, God, this is my ticket. That's not the way it works. In Ephesians, Paul's, Paul tells us that we are, not, we are saved by grace through faith and not by works, lest any man should boast. If we go before God and say, look what I did and I deserve to be in there. I don't, need, I don't deserve to have an eternity away from you in hell. I deserve to be with you, and I've done good works. You know what our righteousness looks like to God? Now we'll get to this other deal that fell out. Our, our righteousness looks like filthy rags. Now, let me describe to you what a filthy rag might be like. Say someone had a bad, bad wound on their foot. And they put a bandage on that. And it's infected. And it bleeds. And the infection gets onto the cloth. And then they're walking. And during the time of Jesus, uh, they, they walked most everywhere they went. And they walked down the dusty path and where the animals had been and they had defecated and urinated on the path. And they're walking through there and that bandage ought to be changed out every hour or so. But it goes uh, to the end of the day and then to the next week and to the next month. And it's full of blood and filth and infection and insects and other vermin have taken up residence. Our good works don't look like this in the sight of God. Our good works are nasty and filthy. And he says that in his sight and in his nostrils, it's like a filthy rag. Look here, Jesus, look at what I did for you. You're going to let me into your heaven? Even if they're good things, they're like filthy rags. Now, he does save us by grace through faith to do good works. And if we are his children and, and we don't have to say, look what I did. He already knows what we did because he preordained those works for us to do. He knew that we were going to be in the path of someone that needed help and that we would be willing to be obedient to him and help them. The problem comes sometimes when he's preordained that we do good works 
and we're saved, we're His children, and we sit back and don't do them. That's problematic. That's serious business. Because you know what? He's God. He's the boss. We're not God. We're not the boss. We need to be obedient to Him. When He tells us to do good works and instructs us through His Word and through His Spirit to do those good works and we don't do them, is He really the Lord of our life? Is He really the boss of our life? You need to ask yourself that. I'm not here to judge you. i got enough trouble taking care of this one. But I do want to uh, encourage you to examine your life. Are you being obedient to God? Are you doing what His book says to do? Are you doing what His Spirit tells you to do? Now, I will warn you, if a Spirit tells you to do something and it's contrary to this book, it's not the Spirit of God. It's the enemy. And when you do that, and it's contrary to the book, then he's going to turn right around and he's going to be the great accuser. And he's going to try to say, hey, Jesus, this isn't really your child because they, they're they not obedient to you. All right. Now, we're going to have to move on because the clock on the wall tells me that we're about out of time. But it's it's serious business. Now, we talked about two foundations. Um, I had one of our builders bring something for me. Um, and these are canisters that uh, when someone is going to build a uh, substantial building, if you're going to build a storage shed out back, you don't need to do this because it's not, uh, it's not necessary. But if you're going to build a substantial building, a building like this, or a, a mansion, when they pour the foundation, when they pour the floor, they will have canisters like this. And they will fill those full of concrete as well, right out of the truck. And they'll pack it down and they'll tap it down and make, it, make sure it's full. And then they'll put the lid on it and mark what job it's from. And, and after it's set up, they'll send usually three canisters like this to a lab. And on a certain date when the concrete is supposed to be hard enough to withstand so much pressure, they'll put that, they'll take the form off, uh, the canister off where it's just the concrete, and they'll put it on a testing machine that will put thousands and thousands of pounds of pressure on top of that until it's crushed. And the architects and the engineers have said, it's got to be so good. It's got to withstand this small cylinder of concrete has to hold so much weight by a certain date. Or you're going to have to go back and do one of two things. You're either going to have to tear out all that concrete and replace it with good concrete. Or you're going to have to redesign the building because it won't hold up. The foundation's not good enough. Now, God is the architect and the finisher of our faith. 
He is not planning on building a storage shed on his foundation. He's not wanting to build a shack on the foundation. He wants to build something that's useful. He wants to build something that's going to bring glory to his name. Now, I'm not talking about building a house. I'm talking about building a life. God's got so many riches stored up for us. If we just let him build on his foundation the way he wants to. Now, a few days later or a few weeks later, they'll test another cylinder. Same process. And then a while longer, because concrete gets harder and harder as time goes on. And there's a test. Now, if we're going to test the foundation for a building that's going to fall down someday, and as beautiful as this is, there's going to be a time when this building isn't here. It's not going to last forever. It's not designed to last forever. But God designed us to last forever. If it's important for us to test the concrete for a building like this, how much more important is it for us to test the foundation that our lives are being built on? It's our choice. Are we going to build on the rock? Now, let me define the rock for you. The rock is Jesus Christ, the Word of God. This book is referred to as the Word. Jesus is referred to as the Word. Uh, Read John chapter 1 and you'll see that. He's the creator of all. This book directs us to Him. That's why it's so important that we support works like the Gideons. That's why it's so important that we are people of the book. We don't come up here on Sunday and... and, uh, read some poem from somewhere else and and preach on that. We don't preach on fables and and, uh, fairy tales. We preach from the book because it points toward Jesus Christ. Now, I want to give you some ideas on how to test your foundation to see if you built on the right rock. Because any other rock might look okay but it's, it's sand, and it's going to falter, and your life is going to crumble. And again, it's not a devastation where you rebuild. It's a devastation that lasts for eternity. So it's worth looking into. Some false tests that I believe Satan puts out there are good things. Many Christians would say, this is a test. Many of these things... I have in my life. But that doesn't mean I have Jesus in my life. Just because I have good morals. And some of you might debate that. Okay. (laughs) Yes, I heard that. Amen. (laughs) Okay. Good works. A date in which I had a spiritual experience. I know when I accepted Jesus Christ. But just because you had a spiritual experience doesn't mean you had the spiritual experience. I feel good about it. 
I was born a Christian. Let me tell you, no one was born a Christian. I was, you might have been born into a Christian home. You might have been taken to church every Sunday from the first day. I go to church. Those are good things, but that's not the acid test. If they're put on the machine, the pressure machine, they're going to crumble too early. Some areas where you can find a true test. You can, uh, we don't have time to go there and read, but you study 1 John. 1 John, the book of 1 John, is written to Christians to help them have assurance of their salvation. If you're struggling with your salvation, you read that. There's some other things that are very obvious, and you could find support for that, uh, for, from the Scriptures for these too. Love. Do you love God? Do you love His Word? Do you love His people? Do you love? And if you love God, and you love His Word, and you love His people, how is that translated? How is that observable in your life? Do you love God enough to give Him glory for the things that He does well? And He does everything well. Do you love Him enough and love His Word enough to spend time in it? This is His love letter to us. This is His instruction to us. We need to be engaged in it. And do you love His people? Christians are His brothers and sisters. The church is His bride. I'll tell you, if someone talks bad about my bride, there's going to be a battle. How much more so do you think there's going to be a battle if someone talks badly about Jesus' bride? So there's love. And do we describe, through that love, do we ascribe glory to Him? When we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, He gives us the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit helps us to understand God's Word. It's earnest. It's, it's, it's a down payment, if you will. It's just a glimpse of what it's going to be like to be with, with, uh, with God. It's like an engagement ring. Okay? And, and it's, our assurance that He is in us. And if you hear time and time and time again truth being taught and preached from God's Word and you just say, I don't get it. I don't get it. You need to pray for the Holy Spirit to enlighten you. He gives gifts through the Holy Spirit. He gives Gifts of teaching and preaching and administration and and um, giving. It's just over and over again. He has all these gifts that he distributes through the Holy Spirit. And then the last one I'm going to 
talk about. There's there's a long list here, but uh, uh, you you do your own research in uh, in First John and throughout the scriptures. Really, another one is: Are you obedient to Him? Are you living a life of obedience to God? He's God, we're not. He's the boss, and we're not. Are you are you doing with your finances what you should? You might say, well, why? Tithing is Old Testament. Remember what we talked about, about the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus would take the Old Testament and he'd stretch it a little bit more. Let me tell you, you cannot outgive God. If you think you can, try it. I think you'll be blessed. One of the first acts of obedience, and in the second service, we're going to have uh, uh, a second grade boy that accepted Christ. He accepted Christ before vacation Bible school, but he uh, was counseled during vacation Bible school this summer. And he's going to be obedient to the Lord in baptism. It's a very simple thing. It's a beautiful picture of the salvation that he has already experienced. But he is to be obedient in that way. There's many people in this congregation that say, I'm a Christian. I I believe in Jesus Christ. But will not yield to baptism. Oh, I was baptized as a child. I was baptized as an infant. And uh, that's good enough. It's not, it's not the way it's done in the book. In the book of Acts, every time someone accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, they were obedient to the Lord in baptism. If we're ashamed of Him before men, He's going to be ashamed of us before His Father. Every aspect of our lives, God is calling us to obedience. And I want to encourage you, test your salvation. Lay it alongside God's word and see if it's true and sound because Satan wants to lie to you. And wants to tell you if you're a Christian, it's okay. Uh, excuse me, if, if you're a Christian, he wants to say, hey, you, you're not towing the mark. And if you're not a Christian, he wants to say, it's cool. Everybody else is in the same boat. But examine yourself. Examine your life. Are you exhibiting the love for God, the love for His Word, the love for His people? Do you have the Holy Spirit? Are you growing? A Christian is is someone that never gets there. Bruce Billingsley is one of my heroes. Guess what? He hadn't got there. (laughs) He's still growing. We don't get there until we get there. And and that's going to be when we're in heaven. Are you being obedient to him? Now, I hope that God is speaking to your spirit and convicting you of what you need to do and what you need to stop doing. And we're going to have a time of commitment. 
a time of self-examination. And if you need to come forward and be prayed with, I'll be here. If you need to come here and, and say, I'm a believer, I've never been scripturally baptized, I need to do that. If you're um, not a part of this congregation, but God is calling you to be a part, be obedient to Him. Do what He's directing you to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for this time in Your Word. I pray, Father, that You would uh, just use it in our lives, not just during these few minutes, these few moments of worship time, but that you would continue to convict us through your Holy Spirit, through your word, and that you would transform us into the image of your son. I know, Father, that that is your desire. And, Father, we give this time of uh, commitment to you, and we ask these things in the precious name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.